0: Welcome to another episode of the Federal Newswire Lunch Hour Podcast with your host, Andrew Langer. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Lunch Hour with Federal Newswire. I'm your host, Andrew Langer. So glad you can join us Today, joining me, and I'm very excited about this, uh, is Congressman Mike Gallagher. He's from Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. He's also now chairman of the House Select Committee on. Competition with the Chinese Communist Party. We're going to talk uh, talk about this. Uh, storied career. The man is very, very educated, uh, but but uh, we don't necessarily need to get into a lot. I always appreciate uh, folks who come in and, and folks who've gone into Congress who have advanced degrees, especially on the conservative side of things. Uh, served as a Marine in Iraq. Uh, retired as a as a captain. Uh, served with General Petraeus, uh, Congressman. Let me let's start here. What made you decide to run for Congress in the first place? <laughs>
1: Well, I had moved back to Wisconsin to work yeah. on a presidential campaign. Uh, our governor, Scott Walker, who's a great governor, ran for president. I,
0: I was a volunteer as well at that time. Phenomenal yes. guy.
1: Did great, great things for the state. And each campaign usually has like a national security sure. guy. So I was the national security advisor on that campaign. And quite honestly, I was not planning on anything. That was my first introduction sure. to politics, but I was like the nerdy policy guy you lock in a room and get you know, don't I'm, don't I'm, let talk politics. I yeah. resemble that remark. Uh, so when that ended, I, um, I moved back to Green Bay, which is where I'm from, and I was sort of embarking on a private sector career when my congressman unexpectedly retired. And some people reached out to me to see if I was interested in running. And quite honestly, my first reaction, I was very hesitant because I, didn't, I had no experience. I didn't know how to fundraise. I didn't never been sure. in front of a camera. Uh, But here I was writing op-eds, kind of criticizing the direction of U.S. foreign policy. And so I felt like this was an opportunity to put my money where my mouth is. And I also felt as a younger guy running for office, I was 31, 32 at the time, you know, it'd be good to have a little bit of a generational shift. And so, um, and then, you know, factor in all the other things about service to country and feeling like I owed a debt to that country and my family and all that stuff.
0: Let's talk about this, though, because you made the jump. You were you you served in the military right after. Actually, I want to start here with, with... what was it like jumping from being an undergraduate at Princeton into into joining the Corps, joining the marine yeah. Corps and 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 then serving in Iraq? I mean, that's we're talking about two very different worlds and a career you don't think about, very much in the late 1960s you would have seen something like that but not in 20 you know the 2010s
1: yeah and and Princeton had a decent army rotc program didn't have naval naval rotc on campus and so i went to officer candidate school for the marine corps and i think for the two years before me nobody had gone my class had three people but it was very small right so it just wasn't you know you go to princeton usually you go get a job on wall street and then you make money and military service at the time was not sort of viewed as as like an option um I sort of fell into it because – I don't come from a military family, but I became fascinated with the Middle East. I was in college when we invaded Iraq. Right. I started to become interested in sort of terrorist groups and their targeting methods, and then I changed my major junior year to start studying Arabic. And so the more I went down that intellectual rabbit hole, I started to think, okay, what does one do with these skills? Sure. And I thought, eh, you know, I don't want to go into academia. I don't want to go – You know, I had no interest in going to Wall Street. And I'm like, what about the military? And yeah. the more I researched the military, the Marine Corps jumped out as just this amazing challenge. And so it was a tough adjustment. I mean, I played sports growing up, but I had never really lifted weights. Yeah. And so even the physical aspect, I had to get myself ready for the physical fitness test. I think a lot of my, my peers at Princeton were kind of thinking, what are you doing? Why would you do sure, this? Right. Why are you volunteering just to go I'm to asking, Iraq yeah. right now? Um, but for me, I just loved, I loved the idea of the challenge, mental, physical, uh, the leadership challenge. I love the idea of being able to sort of um, explore this intellectual interest I had in the Middle East, apply my language and regional skills in a very real way. And um, again, I love this idea of being able to serve my country. And it just had this sort of uh, romantic uh, appeal to me. So even though I didn't come from a military family or even though none of my peers were really making the same decision, without a doubt, it was the best decision I made with my
0: life. So huge debates and discussions, not just in Congress, but elsewhere, about the you know the nation's intelligence services and how that informs our public policy you come out of that background in the military and military intelligence is a very specialized portion of this but how does that now inform your experiences how do they inform your approaches to the debates and discussions that are happening you've got a you've got a very unique insight into all
1: this well i'd say two things one is something i call the 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 lance corporal test and that means that you know i was at the 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 Well, I say my Marines were at the tip of the spear, yeah. where we were sort of in a very tactical environment in western Iraq, um, and we were the human intelligence unit attached to an infantry battalion. So we were in charge of doing interrogations and source operations in order to help the infantry battalion get bad guys, keep the Marines safe, et cetera, et cetera. Even then, we so it was our job to know the area and what was happening better than anyone else. Even then, with a granular level understanding of tribal dynamics, of economic dynamics, of terrorist dynamics, it was very difficult to make sense of what was going on. And I just remember we we spent five months on a deployment looking for a high-value individual, a bad guy, and we just couldn't find him. And finally, through a mixture of of good source work, smart Marines, and a little bit of luck, we found this guy. But it was just so murky. And so I always think when people in D.C. make these very – confident pronouncements or these these <laughs> these high confidence intelligence assessments right. coming out of the DNI or the CIA. I, I just try and apply the Lance Corporal test. I'm okay. like, how does this filter down to the the Lance Corporal who's actually at the tip of the spear, who's got to implement some of these sure. policies? And in my experience with intelligence is it's It's rarely certain, and really things get exciting when you start combining multiple forms of intelligence, human and SIGINT and imagery intelligence, which means you just need people to work together and check their egos at the door. You know, the other thing I'd say is that um, I I do, by and large, I know we've had a lot of scandals in our intelligence community in recent years. Quite honestly, a lot of those shocked me. As someone who came from the intelligence community, I never thought we'd see what we saw with Russiagate, with FISA court abuses. I do think, however, you have to make a distinction between the leadership in some of these organizations, Amen. good point, and the rank and file, of course. And by and by and large, I think we have rank and file that just want to serve their country. Right, they, they want to you know do a difficult job well. And I don't think in some instances are being served well by their leadership at present. You know,
0: it's interesting because in the conversations that I've had with folks in that community, it's right—the folks who sort of are they're at, they're outside of politics and they want to be outside of politics. They just want to serve and do what they want to serve. Now, on the other hand, you are in now a political role, um, but but and I say this. Well, let me ask you this. I don't, because I, I get the sense you don't approach this as a political person. You pr- approach it from the policy goal, right? Elections have consequences because they want to impact the policy. I mean, am I, am I right or wrong here? Uh, you're right. In, that's
1: my fundamental orientation. Yep. Right, I came at this from as a policy yep. nerd. I mean, I was a, a marine, yeah. and then I, you know, used my GI Bill to kind of study policy a little bit more, and then I did policy on the Hill as a staffer. However, I think I've gained, and it really started in working on the Walker campaign, where I went in sort of thinking, oh, I do policy, I don't do politics, and foreign policy must be removed from politics. Okay, I get that as sort of the ideal, but in practice, for your policy to have life and legs, it needs to be politically viable. So these things have to work together. You can't entirely divorce policy— That's the beauty of the
0: system. Exactly,
1: from political realities. And certainly the essence of the system is not allowing— sort of unelected policy mandarins to control everything, right? right? The people are in charge. Exactly. They elect representatives to make decisions, and we have to do robust oversight of the executive branch, and then we've fallen away from that. So in, in some ways, though, I maintain my orientation, as sort of a policy-first orientation, I've gained a respect for the unique interplay of politics and policy and how how important it is for me as someone who is naturally introverted and probably more comfortable writing a white paper uh, it is to get out there and sell policy, I think, is important sure. in formats that people can understand, whether it's on TV or on a podcast or on radio. And that's something I've really had to get comfortable with and I still have to work at every sure. day.
0: Well, let's, let's drill down a little bit because I want to move away from um, – want to move away from the border stuff for for a minute because that's a, obviously a huge national security issue. Let's start with your chairmanship of this select committee on competition with the Chinese Communist Party. At least I think Just I'm getting China, that. Name right. Yeah, but, it's, but, it's but, a long. But let's <laughs> talk about why why the committee was formed but also you know, I remember before 9/11 how China was the main threat. Uh, we're seeing that resurgence now especially as the geopolitical situation changes in central Europe. Talk about China and why we need to be focusing on why the committee was created.
1: Well, Speaker McCarthy, to his credit, uh, had the idea for creating the committee in order to – almost he talks about it in terms of a visit to Normandy he had yeah. and, and, and and talking to then Speaker Pelosi saying, wouldn't it be great if we could prevent something like this from happening? Sure. So I think that, that motivated his desire to create this, to create a sense of urgency around deterring aggression from the Chinese Communist Party before it's too late. On a practical level, too, because China – This competition, we call it, uh, though, as I've said, it's not a polite tennis match. I think it's an existential competition over sort of what life will look like over the next hundred years, if not longer. Um, Because it's a whole of society of competition, legislation and policy naturally transcends various committee jurisdictions. Sure. Put differently, no one committee— is in charge of China in Congress. So you need a committee like ours to play that coordinating function. So I think about us on the committee having two roles or two missions that the Speaker has given us. One is to explain the why to our colleagues in the American people. Why does it matter? Why should someone in Northeast Wisconsin or Washington, D.C. care about the threat posed by the CCP? And two, to be that policy coordinating, that policy accelerator and incubator so that good ideas don't die in a divided Congress. And the speaker has one sort of entity he can point to and say, okay, I want to do X on China. Let's get it done. Let's work through all the complex intercommittee egos that we need to sort of get stuff done in this Congress. That's what we're trying to do and elevate the issue and get, get stuff done even in divided government.
0: You, you, I want to, I want to drill down on that. So where do you think if, if we don't pay attention, where are we going to be a century from now? Well, and if we do pay attention, where are we going to be a century from? I
1: say now? even uh, – I sort of think about it as a um, a short-term sprint and a long-term marathon right. to bo- uh, bo- borrow uh, Pillsbury's very powerful metaphor, I yeah. think. The short-term sprint is deterring war over Taiwan in yeah. the next five years. And that is – I think things are heading in a bad direction. I think we've entered the window of maximum danger. I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk more about that. But I think our, our primary goal is to deter – war in the next five years and right. that's sort of the short-term sprint sure And if you don't win that sprint it's as if you don't even qualify for the yes. long-term right marathon uh over the long term i think to sort of think about what life would look like in a world dominated by china where we're a secondary power right and i don't think they have in mind this sort of balance of power no. between us i think they have in mind global dominance right um uh, just look at what's happening inside of China, yeah. right? Look what's happening in Xinjiang, right? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of... They're perfecting a model of techno-totalitarian control that they they want to export, not only throughout the rest of China, but increasingly abroad. This yes. is a, a world in which you can't say what you think uh, for fear of angering your overlords. Uh, it's a world in which... Um, uh, various uh, minority groups are attacked uh, yep. for the sake of Han supremacy. Um, it's a world in which every aspect of your daily life is monitored by. The party. Uh, yeah. It's sort of Orwell on steroids. Right. I think that is sort of the alternate model of government that we're up against here, as opposed to the free society that we're trying to protect and pass on to the next generation. Orwell could
0: not have conceived of a situation <laughs> in which we could be uh, um, uh, surveilled quite in that way. I mean, he sort of hinted around it. But if he'd ever known that there was this thing called a cell phone that you carry with you all the time, That's right. he would have been horrified by it. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had on uh, Javid Ali, who is a former uh, director of the NCTC National Counterism Center. Uh, Counterterrorism Center, excuse me, uh, now teaches at the University of Michigan. Uh, And he has a very interesting idea theory about declaring cartels Mm. as terrorist organizations. You've just heard Secretary Mayorkas testify. I know you've got some criticisms there I want to talk about. But let's talk about the cartel situation, the border situation, and this theory of Professor uh, Ali's on this, and want to get your thoughts on this.
1: Well, the first and most obvious thing to say is the border is in total chaos yeah. right now, just total chaos. I w- when I was in uniform still, I did this kind of fellowship thing where I floated around different parts of the mm-hmm. intelligence community, spent a brief period of time at the uh, at DEA, uh, and, and went down to the southern border in El Paso and got yeah. to survey what was happening there, and um, I mean, that, that, at the time, it seemed like a massive problem compared to the present day. Sure. I mean, this is just total, total chaos. And what makes it, I think, frustrating is that this is a fixable problem, right? right. We have the technology. We, you know, we potentially could have the manpower if we were like, – what we lack is the willpower to secure the southern border. Perhaps you never get 100 percent operational right. control of the southern border, but you can get darn near close sure. is my belief um, if we reverse the disastrous open border policy that we have right now. Um, so that's point one. Uh, point two, I, I've actually supported legislation in the past to designate um, uh, the cartels as terrorist organizations, the intent really being to unlock the full suite of tools we ha- sure. have uh, in terms of the federal government to get at these organizations which are wreaking utter havoc on American society. Yeah. Third point, the thing I'm most interested in as chairman of the Select Committee on China is this kind of unholy alliance between yes. the drug cartels and the Chinese entities that are supplying all the precursor chemicals for fentanyl. Yeah. And it used to be the case that a lot of this stuff was coming directly from China through the mail, by the way, into okay. America. But now they're sort of sending the precursors to Mexico. They'll produce very lethal the uh, fentanyl uh, pills. They'll traffic it across the southern border, right. and this is killing 80,000 Americans a year. I mean, you sort of think about it as a reverse opium war on America, with the caveat that we don't know how intentional it is. I'm not sure, you know, Xi Jinping. I don't have evidence to say that Xi Jinping declared this war, but 80,000 Americans a year are dying at the hands of the drug cartels, and they're getting the precursor chemicals from China. That is a massive problem for American society, and we should use every tool at our disposal to get control of our southern border and protect American lives.
0: Let's, uh, Let's talk about the current administration. And their approach or non approach to border security, and <laughs> and uh, you know, Secretary Mayorkas seeming to not understand uh, the the there is a problem, or is it is it that they do understand and they don't care? Your thoughts here.
1: You know, I've I've struggled with this intellectually because right. it just seems so obvious to me. Like it's obvious to me that we don't want people to come here illegally, right? And for people who want to come here legally, like, we should make it easy yeah, and sure. transparent. I mean, pr- based on the needs of our economy, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, um, In terms of the, the leadership or lack thereof in the Democratic Party, uh, I'm left to conclude that um, I, I, maybe like the most charitable interpretation is they feel like there's a, America has a humanitarian responsibility right. to accept uh, all of these economic migrants who are pretending to be asylees but the the sort of perversity of that is that a lot of legitimate asylees get crowded out in the process and largely what we're seeing are economic migrants across the southern border and we have a totally messed up asylum process i guess more cynical interpretations are out there but i don't know i I think there's a i think they're being i think people like mayorkas are being driven by fear of the progressive base sure and the progressive base wants open borders right they want open borders I don't know why they want that, but that's what they want. I mean, they and don't, our, they don't, they li- don't want our, to have a wall. And our
0: libertarian friends as well, which is yeah. astounding to me. But go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I go mean, go that's, that's,
1: that's, that's my unsophisticated analysis of the whole thing. Um, but it, it's, it's, it actually exacerbates – if your concerns are humanitarian, it actually exacerbates the humanitarian crisis. Right. And what we're seeing at the southern border is horrific sure. in terms of people dying in trucks – I mean, we're basically empowering the coyotes and the drug cartels to, to commit horrific human rights abuses. So it's actually more humane to have a tough border policy and have an orderly asylum process and a transparent legal
0: immigration right, process. Right, right. In, in, in essence, yes, yeah, you show the rules. You don't allow people to jump in line. You'd be, absolutely, you can, you can prioritize. Uh, so, but let's also talk about this because I know you've spent a great deal of time looking at uh, uh, financial tech, and how that sort of plays into both the cartels and this process. Talk talk about that as well.
1: Well, I mean, w- one thing I would say, we do a poor job of, uh, I would say the intelligence community in general, is incorporating financial analysis into traditional mm-hmm. intelligence analysis. And I still think we have relatively unsophisticated methods for tracking this sort of complex relationship between the cartels, between the precursor suppliers, and all the money launderers right. that are, the, and, and that that is sort of a very poorly understood phenomena. So one thing I'm interested in doing in my role, really on the House Intelligence Committee and conducting basic oversight is pushing the intelligence community to better understand how the money is uh, flowing across borders, how your chemical supplier gets paid by a drug cartel, how a drug cartel gets paid. And I think, you know, as as the old saying goes, um, you know, follow the money. Sure. And and, um, you'll you'll learn a lot that way. I think there's been a lot of debate, too, about the role of cryptocurrency and could it potentially be used for uh, illicit uh, purposes. Uh, my view is there's got to be a way to apply basic anti-money laundering, yeah. know your customer rules to cryptocurrency going forward. It's not my area of expertise. I'm not on the financial services committee, sure. but there are also national security uses for cryptocurrency right. going forward. Um, you know, you saw a lot of people getting out of Ukraine use cryptocurrency in order to move value across borders. So, but by and large, um, this is just and and I say this with love for the rank and file in the IC that are working a hard problem. It's just not the case that your average intelligence analyst. Understands, sure. you know, financial policy or how money works in the way that people on, on Wall Street do. Yeah, listen,
0: I mean, they, they, you know, my own alma mater, William and Mary, they're doing a lot of work on both the crypto side and the blockchain side, and they've come to the conclusion: it's a tool; it can be used for good; it can be used. For bad, it all depends on who the actors are. Listen, I know we're short on time. Before I let you go, normally I ask about outside interests, and I know you're married, you got a one (laughs) child. But let me ask you—actually ask you about. Let's come back to your district, Wisconsin's eighth. You know, if I were to take a day and go to Wisconsin's eighth congressional district, what's the one thing that I should do? Is the one thing that I should see in your home district?
1: Well, uh, you got to come during a Packers game. Okay, of course. You got to visit the Valhalla of football, the Mecca of football, which is Lambeau. Field. that sure. would be that would be the one thing to do. A close second, or that you can do this prior to a football games. Yes. You could go uh, dine at the fine establishment known as Gallagher's Pizza, okay. where the tagline okay. is "Italian Food, Irish Spirit," which is a restaurant <laughs> my dad started nice. over 20 years ago. He no longer owns it; we don't own okay. it anymore. But the Gallagher's name in- endures, and so there's about four little pizza restaurants. Corned and beef and grew, cabbage on the pizza, indeed, or you, they're, they're And then, know. if you really want the complete Wisconsin experience, you gotta like go go visit a dairy farm yes. and you know uh, hang out with cows. I
0: haven't been to the Wisconsin Dells. I've been wanting to do that as as well outside my district, but very important.
1: And then you got to have cheese curds, of course, cheese curds and brats. That I've done.
0: Yeah, yeah. my 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 one visit to uh, to Wisconsin. But so when you but when you're not here, what are you what are you up to?
1: Hanging out with my wife and yeah. two daughters. And I have two a, daughters. Yeah, okay, we, so, yeah yes. we have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old and an eight-month-old, and uh, every marginal minute I have, I spend with them. And uh, all the cheesy things about being a parent are true, and it's just like I'm infatuated with my daughters. You they don't they're listen. Funny. It only
0: gets better. I got yeah. two girls, and they're now uh, 18 and 21, and it only... It only gets better over time. I love it. The more that they I sort of learn. Congressman Mike Gallagher, thank you so very much. Thank you, For sir. joining us. This has been another episode of the Lunch Hour with Federal Newswire. As always, you can check us out if you're watching us on YouTube. You can find us wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. But if you're listening to us, you can also find us on YouTube. Please recommend us to your friends. Recommend us to your family members. Recommend us to your family friends, your friends' families. I'm your host, Andrew Langer. Enjoy the rest of your lunch. This has been the Federal Newswire lunch hour podcast hosted by Andrew Langer. Check out the Federal Newswire's family of websites as well as their social media stream.